I want my kids, you see that every single one of them is involved in agriculture production. We want them to be able to have a beautiful pastures that can healthily sustain a certain number of animals. And we're trying to pass that knowledge and that world of grass onto them because that's who we are. We're people of the grass. And this is where we were created. At one time, we raised buffalo here and those were our herds. And now we raise these cattle we have to have the same mentality. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode, we hear from Joe and Kathy Kipp of the Blackfeet Nation. I'm Scopi Pakani. Joe and Kathy are always on the move. They work hard and keep busy. As cattle ranchers, community advocates, parents, grandparents, and so much more. They live on Cutbank Creek, outside of Browning, Montana, in the heart of Blackfeet country on the Blackfeet Reservation in Northwest Montana. As they're involved in so much, you'll hear about a variety of topics in this episode. Joe will speak with us about the importance of stewarding native grasslands as a rancher and as Unscapi Pakani. He'll also speak to his people's connection to this land and his experience working in predator livestock conflict as he is the chairman of the Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association. Kathy will share with us about connecting to traditional foods and her own berry orchard, and her experience serving on the Farm Service Agency Committee, and the value in having community representation on all fronts. They'll both speak to the strength of the Blackfeet people and the realities of trauma endured over the last few generations, and their own messages they have for those within and outside of the Blackfeet community in how to communicate and move forward in a good way. We first hear from Joe out on the prairie in the pastures he leases for their cattle summer grazing. It was only late June, but drought conditions were already evident, as they were throughout most of the West in 2021. The rolling hills of the prairie here were still green, but with little moisture this season, the grasses had not grown to the lengths it would in other years. In the distance, chiseled peaks plummeted out of the prairie. These mountains were what the Blackfeet call the backbone of the world, and are also known as the Rocky Mountain Front, and part of what is now Glacier National Park. Joe and Kathy were in the midst of working on a solar-powered well where we were standing, with other water development projects on the horizon in other pasture areas. These pastures lacked surface water and had limited groundwater opportunities, so the work to get adequate water here for the cattle did indeed seem constant. Joe speaks to the native grasses of these prairies, the respect that they deserve, and his views on being a steward of native grassland prairie ecosystems. As you'll hear, the wind is almost constant on the prairie here, making it its own character and presence of being in this landscape. Okay, so like some of this grass here, this plant here is probably over a hundred years old. This is Idaho fescue. That plant there is a hundred years old. It's like trees. And if we take too much of the growth and don't leave any for the plant, if they can't store any energy to, to survive during droughts or winters or 
the worst thing you can do to native grass is to overgraze it. So we have to be very careful that we only take half of the growth in any given season. And in our rotational grazing plan, not only are we moving the cattle every 21 to 30 days, but then we're also changing the season of use. In a really wet year, the rough fescue here grows about three foot tall. But on dry years, this is what we have. And so we have to balance the grazing, the amount of animals we put out here, not only for the low growth years, but also the, the dry water years. Uh, you could put a thousand head of cattle out here, but we'd run out of water, they, they, they would uh, starve to death for water. For years, we've been working on it, creating a grazing system that where the cattle are now, they'll be there for 26 days. Then they'll be moved to this field for 31 days and right down the line for the other five pastures that have water developed on them. And we're still working on water systems because, you know, it looks really nice now. It's all, everything's all green. But remember that 80% of our grass, grass growth occurs in May and June, around July 10th. In some years it's over and whatever, that's, that's it. We have to survive on it. I, I don't call myself really a livestock producer. We do produce livestock. We manage the grass. We're grass farmers. Uh, we have to study the grass and, and know the life cycle of it, how, how much energy it needs to regrow every year. And all, then we harvest what we can, sustainably harvest a certain amount of the growth each year. So grass is a wonderful thing. It's a truly only annual renewable resource. Everything else, and it's wild. So you don't have to do anything to it except pray for rain and never overgraze it. We need to leave enough grass here, enough solar panels here, so that the grass plant itself can have some solar panels to store some more energy for next year's growth. And like the rough fescue, which is, it takes four years of growth to, to make a seed. That is an indicator species. When that plant disappears from the grazing area, they're gone forever. They'll never come back unless they're reintroduced, the seeds are reintroduced. And this plant, their life cycle is up to 200 years. And so we manage grass. We're grass managers. The cows are harvester. We take off the grass growth that is allowable. We want it to grow back. We want to take half, leave half. We plan to harvest only enough grass for the drought years and still leave a viable stand. And also water. We have to balance it with water. This year, uh, we have had some good moisture early in the season. Then it kind of dried off during the winter time. We didn't have a lot of snowpack here. So we had one storm at the end of May that just really helped us out tremendously. We had about two feet of really slushy snow. It brought about four inches of moisture to the ground. And it looked like we were off to a beautiful start. But then we started getting these, these uh, heat waves would come in for about four or five days. And see, normally here, when Kathy and I were young, 
70 degree days were about the tops. If it got in the 80s, we were, we were melted. These 90 degree days this early in the season was, was unheard of. The four inches of, that, of moisture that came in that two foot of snow in the end of May, I think is drying up with the heat. I think that, that that's it. There will be no more growth. But the drought monitor looks like, uh, you know, eastern Montana, southern Montana and Wyoming, all the way down to California, extreme, dr extreme droughts. We're kind of right on the buffer zone in between. I don't think we're gonna escape the bullet. So we are seeing, starting a drought situation. But I know when we were younger too, this is what, when the thunderstorms would come through, they would drop three quarters of an inch of rain or an inch of rain within 30 minutes. You know, we'd have, we'd call them gully washers. All these little coolies would just be flowing. It would just recharge all the aquifer and all the grass and everything would happen. But we very seldom get those kinds of uh, thunderstorms anymore. Just the weather is changing a lot. And one thing I, I really want to give credit to is the USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service. I think they're light years ahead. They're making this uh, long-term, helping producers make these long-term plans and, and making grant monies available to, to do these things so that we can stay in business in a changing environment. Grass is, I wish people would view it the same way they view trees. It's a long-lifed organism. It has a spirit. I hope my children and grandchildren can use it. It'll still be here. And so that's the sustainability I'm talking about. We want to have a healthy environment. I want my kids, you see they're all, every single one of them is involved in agriculture production. And we're trying to pass that knowledge and that world of grass onto them. And we want them to be able to have a beautiful pastures that can healthily sustain a certain number of animals and that we're not in it for the quick the quick financial gain, and we don't want to hurt the resource because that's who we are. We're people of the grass. Our ancestors lived here from the beginning. Our creation story starts 100 miles north of us here on Old Man River in Alberta. This is where we were created. The grass is who we are. At one time, we raised buffalo here, elk, and those were our herds. And now we raise these, uh, cattle and uh, we have to have the same mentality. Later that fall, I visited the Kip family again as they were moving their cattle herds from the summer grazing pastures to the winter corrals by their home. This moving process entailed Joe and Kathy, their kids and their grandkids saddling up on horses and side-by-sides, first riding miles in each direction within the summer pastures to gather the cattle then moving them down along the side of the highway several miles to their wintering grounds. It was a sight to see, the orchestration between riders and cattle and between family members to keep everyone safe and moving into position where needed. The following day, the family gathered again to move the cattle through the chutes to complete fertility checks and vaccinations. Again, watching the family work as a team, each in their position, keeping cattle orderly outside, moving them through the chutes, and tallying fertility checks and due dates for calves. These were just two of the 365 days of constant demanding work that the Kips, like other family ranch operations, handled day in and day out. After the duties were completed on the second day, 
Joe shared with me about the care and respect that they see as mandatory to give to the animals that they raise here. We're not really running this as efficiently as possible. We take care of the cattle a little more than what's efficient. Uh, what I mean by that is we make sure that they're well, well fed. Uh, we probably feed them a little too much. And uh, we try to really give them genuine kindness when we handle them. You know, I think, you know, today you might have seen how me and the kids can handle them. There's no cows jumping over the gates. So we try to handle our cattle like that with respect and kindness. And our belief, a holistic belief is if we treat them well, give them plenty of great nutrition, plenty of kindness when we handle them, give them the latest vaccines to give them a healthy life. We actually believe that the animal, when it's converted into food, will come back as a medicine for us. That animal that was treated with love will also return that love when it gives itself to us to eat. So that's our idea of life. and. My wife and I both believe in this, and that's what we, we raise food for the world. And we want our food to be healthy. We want people to thrive on it. And we want the animal to be treated well in its lifetime up until that time. And it's a sad world that, yeah, they, they, they all, everything's based on finances. But if I win the lottery, I plan to be able to put all that into the cows and probably ranch for a couple more years. That's a joke. <laughs> and now going back to Joe on the open prairies of the summering pastures, where we had come across a series of lichen-coated rocks in circular formations. Joe said this was one of many spots that he has seen these in the area. You see these scattered rocks? These are not just randomly placed rocks. These are where our ancestors camped. So this is a teepee ring right here. Now this is a little tiny one. I'm pretty sure this is probably from uh, the dog days here. Huh? And you can tell by the lichen growth on these rocks that they've been here for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands. So as you guys know, when uh, our creation story starts up on Old Man River, which is about 90 miles from here. And so our people were created here. We've always lived here. And these are our ancestors. You know, our ancestors were very resilient. They knew how to live within the resource. They knew how to live in balance with the animals and the grass, the bison, the elk, the moose, the deer, the horses. And then uh, in the last couple centuries, it's been a lot different for our people. Lots of changes occurred, genocide, so this land that's the Blackfeet Reservation is just one very small part of the Blackfoot's Aboriginal lands. They went, we go from all the place, all the way from Edmonton, actually on this side of Edmonton, the South Saskatchewan River, all the way to the Yellowstone River. That's our historic homeland. This is the highest, rockiest, most volatile weather-related place of all that great unit this is all that they gave us left. This was a concentration camp that they allowed us to keep. So my point is this, we're still tied to the land, we still survive, and that is our greatest attribute, is we're still here. We're not here in the same form that our ancestors were here. 
Kathy and I don't live in a teepee, we have a teepee. That's not a dog pulling that uh, plow around. And we're using solar power energy and computerized pivot systems to grow winter feed. But we've evolved, uh, we pray for what has happened to our ancestors, for, for us to be able to forgive and help our people to heal. And we pray for that healing. And so the fact that we're alive and have raised children and grandchildren that have a strong sense of self and can use the resources that we have to survive on the land. Because if they took our land, if we didn't have this resource, we'd all live in, uh, in ur an urban setting. And we, couldn't, we can't do that. Beef ranching is the number one industry in Montana by, by uh, it brings in the most amount of uh, financial dollars to the community. Uh, without that tie, we would just be vagabonds. I don't know how you guys feel when you're out here, but this is home. This is our, you can see, this is our home. But I come out here and I try to work and watch things and keep an eye on the cattle and try to develop new systems. Kathy comes out and rides to the cows, checks them all the time. This is not, a, yeah, it's kind of like a desert when it's a drought, but it's, uh, it's home, it's beautiful. This is where we come from. Our people have always been here, so there's not one square inch of dirt that we're not a part of. And what I like to tell my kids is, uh, so Napi Natusi is what the old people, how they pray, huh? They don't use the word Epistatoki, but Napi Natusi. Natusi is his holiness, or the ho holiest of holies. Napi is our older brother. Now everyone calls it old man river, but really Napi is my brother. So Napi is older brother. So this uh, line of Napi, Natusi, can we address the sun through our older brother Napi, who had a great big nose like us, a sense of humor, learn from his mistakes and make plenty of mistakes in his, his creation. But he is not creator, but he's part of our teacher, if that makes sense. And the spirit of Napi is in this dirt. And we're, we're, we're from this dirt. And like between Trevor and I, the spirit of Napi is brotherhood. It's in him. It's in me. It's in every living, pers living person in this environment. We're related through our origin. It's just that I came from a better piece of dirt than he did. <laughs> so that's what I tell my kids. This is where we grow. We didn't just come here. We have no migration story, huh? We were created here. All, most of the other tribes, Dene especially and the Kota, they got stories of how they migrated around the world. and Some of them probably came on boats. I don't know, but, but we don't because we come from this ground. Later that day, I joined Joe on the banks of Cupbank Creek, just behind his house. So I welcome you to my backyard. He's on the banks of Cutbank Creek. Where as much of the surrounding area was prairie grasslands, dropping down into this riverbed was like entering a rainforest. Towering cottonwood trees created a dense canopy, shading a lush understory of vegetation and marsh grasses. Though you couldn't see them all, the sheer volume from the bird songs indicated what a metropolis habitat it was for them. 
Joe and Kathy purchased their home in 1991, and Joe initially had cattle grazed in this riparian area seasonally, as the previous owners had done with their management. Joe says his initial reasoning to start fencing this area off to cattle was because grizzly bears would frequent the area, and having grizzly bears, dense brush, and cattle was not a great combination. Joe speaks to the transformation he's seen since keeping this area closed off to cattle. So we're, again, keeping the cattle out of the riparian area. And I've noticed a huge change in the landscape down here since we've done that. The uh, cover, the, the trees and the brush grow right down to the river's edge. Uh, all of this is much more lush than it ever was. And my house is probably only about five feet higher than this river. So after a while, I got to thinking, well, you know, that's a good idea to keep the river bank stabilized so I don't get washed out. I wasn't really, I don't think, I'll be honest, I don't think I was really being a nature conservancy at that time in my thinking. Just kind of self-preservation, keeping as many calves alive as possible, and uh, keeping my home safe. But then I started noticing a change in the environment. When we first came down here, moose were very, very rare transients coming through. Uh, a few grizzly bears down then, uh, very few mountain lions. And so over time, we started noticing that the, the big game population started to improve down to the point that now we have resident moose here. As you can see around here, it's just nice thick undercover lots of berry trees and lots of things for bears to eat too and of course with increasing uh big game populations the predators the mountain lions they became more prolific they, they come through quite often now and we also started noticing see I've, i'm an outfitter a fishing and hunting outfitter and have been for 35 40 years at first I, i'd allow the clients to come fish this on their own like the first day they showed up or the last day because the fish were the quality wasn't very good there were lots of fish but they were all very very small but after about a decade of keeping the cattle out all the time i started noticing that the bug life the aquatic bug life was improving and the quality the, the quality of the fish improved too so they got instead of a lot of small ones they're starting to become less fish but a lot bigger size too and we're also noticing not just rainbows and brook trout but also cut wild cutthroats coming back i'm thinking without the cattle eroding the stream bed maybe the water's cooler or maybe there's pools that are darker and more shaded maybe the brush cover is helping that i don't know but for some reason the cutthroat are starting to uh to appear too I wish I could say that was all by design. My design was just to bring the moose back, but so many other animals have benefited from doing this. The loss of the grazing, well, it's a small factor. You know, we could we could take every blade of grass and run it through our uh, our cattle that I feed my family with, but we also get a benefit by the wildlife having a home here too. You know, a human being my, in my lifetime, I've, I'm only going to be here for a few years. The river will be here forever. And I'm, I want to leave it in a better condition than when I found it. So that hopefully my kids and grandkids will still uh, benefit from 
having the wilderness basically come up to their backyard. Now it's a little discerning when the grizzly bears come too close, but that's why we have curly and bear dogs and electric fences and stuff like that. But they actually improve the environment, the riparian corridor. I think I'm hoping we'll have much longer ramifications and blessings than what I'm gonna receive in my lifetime. Uh, the Blackfeet have a saying, only the mountains last forever. Well, this is kind of like a mountainous, wild atmosphere here, environment. And hopefully it will last forever. And we won't graze it out. We won't harvest the timber. We won't cut out all this stuff and grow crops down here bank to bank. Because this is very, very special land. This is a fen. This ground right here, which is fully two feet above the river, is wet and, and boggy. There's some kind of formation forcing the water up. So everything down here is sub-irrigated. Everything grows, even in the biggest droughts. This is an oasis. And to leave it ungrazed or un, uh, unharvested, I think we need to have special areas like that. And, you know, it. we may come to the point where the, at some point the... the uh, Soil scientists, grass scientists might tell me I have to graze this for the benefit of the land. But if it, we do, it'll be in the wintertime when it won't hurt anything. But everything will be dormant. Everything will be uh, frozen so they can't erode the banks. But we'll, we'll never, hopefully I'll never see the, the day that we uh, degrade the environment here. Because you can just look at the river. It's got a lot of clarity to it. The water's cool. There's lots of well-defined pools and holes and cover for fish, for mink, for otter, for beavers. So I have to share this environment with all the other living species that are, that are here, not just my children and grandchildren. And they all have a right to, to have an unmolested home. Where you're standing, there's lots of peppermint. And there's so many other medicines down here that we use for, for health. They only grow in places like this. There's some wild dill right there, huh? I asked Joe about his work with the Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association, which he is the chair of. This association connects producers in Blackfeet Nation with resources and information to assist with their operations. And a large focus of their work is around grizzly bear and predator livestock conflict. You can also hear more on this topic in the podcast episode hearing from Joe's daughter, Kristen Kipp. I don't remember exactly how many years ago, I think maybe it was eight years ago, some of my fellow producers contacted me and said we need to start doing something about our grizzly bear problem. Basically what was happening is they were getting, uh, their livestock was getting killed and consumed by grizzlies. And they are federally protected. And uh, the tribe had gone through a period of uh, been able to manage its own wildlife up until 1978 and then uh, having to go under federal dictatorship basically over how the bears were, were handled. So off reservation, the, there's some systems that have been put in place that help non-reservation producers with their wildlife conflicts. Uh, the Blackfeet tribe did not have those working relationships. We did have a, a grizzly bear crew and they were kind of bringing us in one direction where Blackfeet would not kill bears. Bears would be relocated, uh, never removal of problem animals, etc. And the producers were saying, well, how come on off the reservation, 
repeat offenders of livestock killers are removed from population. We got together, we formed the Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association. We had many, many specialists come in and, and give speeches to us and uh, let us ask questions to try to figure out what was working off reservation, why wasn't it working here. Basically, uh, the Blackfeet Reservation is very small compared to the grizzly bear habitat in Montana. We were having 33% of all livestock depredations in the entire state were, were occurring on our reservation, and that was just the reported ones. So we realized our numbers were exceptionally high. So we had these experts come in and talk to us and explain different programs, different ways that different counties, non-reservation counties were contracting help and who they, how they got that help. And it basically comes from the USDA APHIS Wildlife Service. They're the, the special agents charged with uh, controlling wildlife populations. APHIS is an acronym for Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, and the USDA APHIS Wildlife Agents are funded through cost shares from producers. But because of the trust land system of reservations, the producers here did not have any cost share, and they couldn't get an APHIS agent to come out to work with them. The Blackfeet Nation Stockers Association went to the Department of Interior and spoke with the Interior Secretary at the time, Secretary Bernhardt, to work out a plan where they could get Blackfeet tribal members trained as agents under the USDA. Now, it was a seven-year plan that we would go from that date to getting our own tribal members trained and licensed and hired by the USDA APHIS Wildlife Service, and it took us two years. For that, I really credit my daughter, Kristen, for helping. So yeah, we've, got, we've had these, uh, a lethal agent, Glenn Hall, tribal member, he's on board, he's doing a good job, and he's not out there wantonly killing any bear, but the, the known ones that are, 5% of the bears cause 95% of the kills. By removing those bears, He's creating a safer environment for ranchers and bears. And then we also hired another guy, his name is Diamond Running Crane. He's out there building electric fences, protecting baby livestock or other livestock interest. Joe mentions this fencing prevents all forms of habituation of bears to interact with human attractants, gardens, small livestock, and more. Knowing that once a bear does become habituated, to associating these human attractants with food, that that association will forever be trained into them. And from that, everything else kind of snowballed. I was appointed by the governor of Montana, Greg Gianforte, to be part of the Montana Livestock Loss Board. So the Montana State Legislature takes some of the money, Montana's tax dollars, basically, and puts it into a fund to pay ranchers for animals that are killed by wildlife. And so there has to be some administrative source that, that makes sure that the money's spent correctly. And that's where the Montana Livestock Loss Board comes in. So I've been recently appointed to that. And most everything is pretty well set of how, how much. First of all, the Wildlife Service has got to be the investigating department. It has to be them. If they write it up, the office pretty much knows how to compensate people fairly and, and quickly. But there's also a lot of money involved with that for livestock loss prevention. And that's kind of where we come in or, or maybe tweaking the laws for next season. Basically, we're just kind of an oversight committee, but also looking out for the future, how to make the program better and better. 
More and more loss prevention grants are available, so we'll be overseeing that directly. By state legislature, the Montana state will pay for grizzly bear, wolf, and mountain lion, and I think black bear kills, but I'm not sure. But they won't kill for coyote kills. We're on our own there. You know, the Wildlife Service cannot just kill a bear because it's killing cattle. There's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Grizzly Bear Recovery Center, and they have to get permission to remove a bear. So it's, the responsibility falls on them. But again, I have to be become the face between the advocacy for non-lethal and lethal control of wildlife because our agents are not, they're not getting a whole bunch of money. And those guys are walking into brush where there's a known killer and they're putting their life on the line daily for us. And I, and I don't want them to get, catch a lot of grief from the public. And the agency itself catches a lot of grief. Did you know that? They're, the, they're one of the most hated federal groups there, or organizations there is, which is ludicrous when you think about what they do. Some of the other things I do, like I'm also on the tribe's uh, fish and game committee uh, and I just try to make things fair for us to hunt. Uh, the tribes have, has got a really good handle on their wildlife, and I want to really help work more with the off-reservation hunting rights in Yellowstone, the uh, off-reservation rights in all of our Aboriginal treaty grounds, things like that is why, why I want to be involved with, with that. And I think that's about it. The, the, uh, Stock growers is still a pretty big issue. We've, we've conquered one of the main things, like I said, we, by getting the special agents out here to, to help us and be available. But now our percentage of depredations in Montana is still extremely high. It's even higher now than it was then. But I, I think there's a couple of reasons for it. Number one is our special agent answers the phone immediately and responds to calls. Either people are becoming more and more comfortable with him or he's getting onto site before the uh, evidence degrades so he can precisely determine whether that animal was alive or dead when that bear was eating on him. But something, but our, our levels are still extremely high. And also we're, gonna, we're taking on the FSA, the Farm Service Agency. 62% of our producers, tribal producers, do not enroll in Farm Service Agency programs. FSA is an agency of the USDA, which provides ranchers and farmers nationally with resources in the form of loans, grants, or information. These programs are and always have been critical for agricultural operations to survive certain years. The assistance of an FSA agent is key to help navigate the enrollment of the various programs. There is no FSA office, and therefore agents, on the Blackfeet Reservation currently even though much of the county's producers are tribal members on the reservation. The nearest one is in Cutbank, the seat of Glacier County, which is outside of the reservation. Joe said they asked these Blackfeet Nation tribal producers their reasoning for not enrolling in FSA programs, and most of them said the office was too far, which for busy ranchers, a lack of spare time is one of the largest barriers to entry for many things. We're, we're after the FSA, we're hopeful that they will open a full-time, fully staffed office here in Browning. That'll be customer friendly. Ranchers, farmers can stop in there, get a cup of coffee, see if they're up to date on all their forms, and roll forward. And let's get that number from 62% not participating to at least down to 20. 
and we're trying to we're trying to convince them that for the benefit of our people, they need to do this. We now hear from Kathy Kipp, Joe's wife, who I spoke with sitting in the shade of a cottonwood tree, also near their home. We will hear later from Kathy on her experience of being on the FSA committee. But first, she speaks about the place where we're sitting, the land that has been her home for the past 30 years, and the discovery her family made of stone graves on the property here. She also speaks to the fate of how that Native family lost this land, a fate that was all too common for tribal members. Well, I knew this place. When I was a kid, I grew up on the other side of the river, and but I didn't realize there, these graves were up here right up on top of this hill. They're just rock graves and uh, oval shapes, all different sizes, like from babies to children to adults. I guess a lot of them uh, died from the flus. The land was lost from the Blackfeet family that had this place, where they owed a bill in town and at the uh, mercantile in Browning, and they had no way to pay the bill and it wasn't very much, so the land was taken. That's how they lost it, over that bill, grocery bill. And then it was sold to someone else. The land was transferred to non-Native ownership at that point, but the Kips made an interesting discovery when they were able to purchase the land. The graves up on top, we um, found out that the uh, Indians that had lived here before us were actually Joe's relatives. So it was kind of like getting it back, you know, in the family. And we felt good about that, that we were able to, to get the land and take care of the graves up there, you know. With a lot of hard work, saving money, and persevering through systemic racism blockades in the financial lending institutions, Joe and Kathy were able to buy this place in the early 90s. I think a lot of people, when they, uh, especially our Native people, when they go to a bank or a loan place and they want to get help, and if they're told something like, oh, you think you can do that, then, you know, it kind of takes away their confidence or their will to keep trying, you know what I'm saying? So I guess I would just say, you know, to uh, keep trying if that happens, not to give up. I asked Kathy about her experience being a member of the FSA committee or the Farm Service Agency and her views on the importance of representation in these spaces. The committee I'm on is the FSA committee. It's down in Cutbank, and I was appointed as a cultural representative and to represent women because they have some guidelines they follow. That's why I was appointed, because they needed somebody who was a native and somebody who was a woman because there was no representation there. So I filled out the form and was appointed. So I do my best to try to represent all the people, but also make sure that the tribal producers are being considered and not denied on things uh, to give them a chance. While on the committee, I did some checking and what we found out is that the majority of the producers in Glacier County are tribal members, but we were not getting the representation to represent the, that number of people. That's another thing we've been working towards is trying to get more people involved, 
you know, we've got some help from the FSA uh, during some of these storms where you lose cattle or where you lose crops. And it really helped out. I could imagine if more producers could get that help, that they'd be, you know, so much farther ahead with their operations. Well, like we have the water project that we're working on out there to put in the solar panels. And you saw how dry it was out there and um, not much water if we didn't do that. We're getting that help through those programs and I think more people could benefit. I know uh, a lot of young people could uh, use getting loans, could use a help doing projects. So those are kind of my goals to try to help people out by encouraging them to get involved and, and to encourage the FSA to give all of our native people a fair chance to sign up for these programs and participate in them. Having your voice represented by somebody who's from your own people, they're going to take that extra step to try to do what they can. They have a different mindset of caring for their people. You know, some of our native people are very outspoken and not afraid to, you know, speak out on things, and then others are. If you're not an outspoken person or not very confident, or if you're young even, and you get told some negative things, you're not so likely to want to try again. So it's very important to have that representation, to look out for them. When I got on the committee, that was one of the things I asked, is that, that they would communicate more with tribal producers and let us know what's going on, you know, what programs are available. Kathy had told me about a storm that hit the region in the spring months, bringing two to four feet of heavy snow, creating conditions that directly threatened the lives of the cattle, as well as weighing down the grass in a way that they could not get to it. Kathy speaks to how her and Joe applied for assistance from an FSA program to help in the relief of this event but that access to this program was not made public enough, preventing many producers from receiving critical help. Uh, our office did not know there was uh, something available uh, when we asked. When that storm hit, we knew it was going to be lost because we had to put, we had to feed, but we didn't, little did we know it was flattening the grass, like I said, flat to the ground, that the cow could not get that grass up to graze on it. You know, the closer the mountains, the worse it was, you know, four to five feet of snow. And it was a heavy snow. And sometimes you have to be your own advocate. Like Joe and I got online and looked up under their website that there was a program and we brought it to their attention. The thing we tried, to, like I said, we tried word of mouth to let people know. We tried to spread the word. I think we put it on our um, stock grower site but some people didn't hear about it till it was past the 30 days and they got denied. So I felt bad about that. And it was a matter of survival when the storm was going on. Like, you know, all you could do is put out feed and some shelter and hope for the best. So we have these storms like this every so often and, you know, they kill our livestock. The, like I said, our, our crop was ruined for the rest of the grazing season. And then now, during the spring and summer and fall, 
We have predators, grizzly bears, wolves, coyotes. That's why we have like eight dogs <laughs> to chase off the mountain lions and the bears. And, and they do, they do a good job. We're doing everything we can to keep our losses down. I guess I would just hope for the people in those government positions to uh, know it's tough at times and ask for them to uh, listen and help our people out. You know, whether it's in your work with FSA or otherwise other works you've done throughout your life, do you mind saying something just about that process of working with other people that might share different values, they might have different priorities, but you know, that process of working with folks, what works in those situations, I guess? Well, when you have people with different values and different belief systems, if they're very set in their ways, you can't change them, you can't control them, but you can try to educate people, you can try to let them know what's going on. For example, about 20 years ago, I was working on the, this writing project. I had a lesson about the Blackfeet and the boarding school and how it uh, directly related to my family, what happened to my uh, grandfathers and grandmothers when they went to boarding school and to other people. So I was asked to take my lesson and go and present over in Missoula, Montana. I thought, okay, you know, it's a chance to educate people. And so I went, got into the class, I presented my lesson. They were mostly teachers that were in the class, uh, adults, and mostly from southern Montana. And uh, they were rather quiet. So after I presented the lesson, I talked to them to think about what I presented and to write about it. And uh, most of them just sat there. And a couple scribbled something down. And I walked around and I was like, wow, they're not really writing. So I went over to the instructor and I whispered to her, they're not writing, what's going on? And she's like, I don't know. She went around talking to them and they told her that they didn't believe that that happened. They said that couldn't have happened. <laughs> I was like, okay, where are these people coming from? I presented it honestly to the point it wasn't it wasn't like racist or anything, you know, it wasn't that at all. It was just about what happened to our people. <laughs> and uh, they didn't believe it happened. And so all I can do is speculate uh, that if they didn't believe it happened, then why are they uh, finding all of these dead children? I would say that was just one of the things was the Boarding schools in Canada, they call them residential schools, where children were robbed from their families and, and taken. A lot of them didn't return. And even in my family, my grandpa's sister, who did not return, she died there as a little girl. You know, that's just uh, a small part of it. I know there's a lot more. All the things that have happened to our people, like their, the boarding schools, the uh, allotment put on a little piece of land with no water, you know, having our reservation taken from us, people just moving in and taking over the land. And we're pushed onto their, one of the rockiest, coldest, windiest places.
What Kathy is mentioning here is in reference to the Allotment Act of 1887, which came after the formation of reservations, which for the Blackfeet, the current area of their reservation was historically only a summering grounds for the Blackfeet, as winters are extremely harsh and volatile here. The Allotment Act of 1887 was an effort by the U.S. government to further reduce Native people's access to land, culture, and fragmented their community-centric lifeways. Across the country, tribal members were allotted plots of land within their reservations, and all remaining reservation land was opened up to those outside of the community to come into homestead. For the Blackfeet, this allotment took place without tribal consent, and they lost 800,000 acres of the reservation to non-native homesteading. We're trying to, trying to make a living here and survive. To us, this is our home, so we stay here. Yeah, I, I guess you can't really make up for all the loss we've had. You know, we've lost children at boarding schools. We've uh, lost the family structure that we had because the treatment we received there, our people received. What I get tired of is people saying, well, why can't they just get over it? Why can't they just uh, be like the immigrants? Well, it's not the same. They didn't have happen to them here what we had happen to us. For one thing, we were already here. I guess you could just call it greed. Sometimes greed gets the best of people, and I think that as Indian people, we need to do our best to be drug and alcohol free because uh, life is hard enough trying to get through it. You don't need to handicap yourself doing that kind of stuff. And I know there is such a thing as intergenerational trauma. So like all the injuries and hurts that happen to our people, killing off, um, you know, the women and the babies and the old men. Uh, and to witness that, you know, that's part of you. And you carry that. I know that our people are trying to, or many of them are, trying to forgive but not forget what happened and it's very hard to do because you have that that DNA inside of you and you're carrying it with you I guess hope I guess I would hope that each generation could get better I would hope for better for our children you know that the discrimination will stop on our reservation we've got a lot of water starts here that's what I'm afraid is that Next, the government will start demanding that we give up our water. And you need water to survive. You know, a lot of these other places are having droughts in eastern Montana. They're going to be looking for more water. We need to claim our water. We need to make better use of it. We're doing the best we can. You see, we have our pivot going. We're irrigating. We're doing water development. I think as a tribe that we, we could do more of that, um, think to the future about developing that water. So for people that don't have the same belief system, we, you know, we like to share, but there's a point we gotta take care of ourselves. We treat our, our visitors and our guests, you know, good. And, and if you don't believe these things happened to our people, then start reading and educate yourselves don't just uh, be in denial. And that's the way to move forward, is to learn more and communicate with others. Kathy is also starting a berry orchard at her home, growing different varieties of savas berries, 
also known as serviceberry, sarvisberry, or Saskatoon, which also grows wild in this part of the world. This is a native serviceberry or Saskatoon berry from right here in our home area. Okay, then move down here. These three right here are smoky Saskatoons. So it takes a while to get them established and, and going and producing. But when these come on, they'll just be like grapes. They're just like bending the branches over. And the reason I started the orchard was savisberries were getting hard to accumulate enough of them for our ceremonies, for our family. We had to compete out there with the grizzly bear and the black bear, other berry pickers, and having access to the berry sites. Savisberry is uh, very important in our ceremonies. It has to be a part of our ceremony. It's been a staple food for our people, the Blackfeet, for a long time. And it's considered a superfood, which means it is very high in vitamins than any other berry. And this is the kind of food our people ate, along with buffalo, other wild meat, and plants. So what my hope is that we'll have enough berries eventually for our ceremonies, for our family. If it goes good, maybe we'll enlarge the orchard and make it available for other people. I think, you know, we need to get back to eating in a healthy way to uh, prevent diabetes and keep uh, people healthy. Kathy speaks about the disconnection to a diet that the Blackfeet people survived on for thousands of years and why it's important to reclaim these foods. I would say into the 1800s, we were able to pretty much travel our hunting areas and gathering areas. So up north in uh, the Saskatchewan River, and from there, that's up in Canada, and then down to the Yellowstone in Montana, in southern Montana, um, was our area. So we had a lot of area to um, gather from, to hunt in. We didn't just stay in one spot and use out the resources. We kept moving. And then our reservation started shrinking, and as the reservation shrunk, we had less area to hunt, to gather in, and to where we're at now, we're in just a small area. As the government took the land, we um, were offered things that were foreign to us, like white flour, white sugar, rice, pork, and beef, and things like that. And they weren't in very good condition by the time they arrived to our people here. And uh, a lot of the people became very sick from eating that kind of a diet that they weren't used to. Some of them even died. So the highly processed foods were not good for them. We had things like rations that were brought out and given to the people. But we didn't have a lot of choice because the area was pretty well hunted out. We couldn't travel to gather. So we ate whatever uh, was provided to us. So to this day, you see people making uh, fry bread out of white flour and frying it in grease and it's very tasty and we have it now and then but it's not the healthiest food for you to have so yeah and then the we we ate buffalo which is one of the healthiest meats there are well, like our family today 
we're able to go down to Yellowstone and hunt. Our family, sometimes it's just Joe and I, and sometimes some of the kids go along and, and help. But it's a lot of work butchering the large animals out. You're out in the field, you don't have good access to get to your animal to get it out of there. So we bring things like sleds and um, packs and the animal has to be skinned in the field. If you leave the hide on, it holds in the heat and the meat can actually spoil on you if you leave it on there too long. So the diet has been a big um, factor in our people's health. A lot of people with diabetes and heart trouble. I think, you know, some people are trying to do some gardening and trying to eat more buffalo and wild game and be healthier. We need to do more of it. So what I'm doing is, is basically just a start, you know, and uh, maybe more people can do this. There are various efforts within Blackfeet Nation to reclaim traditional foods. Food Access and Sustainability Team, or FAST Blackfeet, is a locally-led entity that works to increase food sovereignty and access to healthy and culturally appropriate foods. Some of their programs includes a mobile food pantry, sourcing many locally produced food products, the Growing Health Project, which includes working with community members to grow plants that are used to create traditional and medicinal teas, as well as outreach and education to reconnect to traditional foods, including workshops on processing bison. There's also the Blackfeet Agricultural Resource Management Plan, which you can hear more about in our episode with Pecani Lodge Health Institute, and the INI Initiative to reintroduce bison in this region, working with the Northern Bands of the Blackfeet Confederacy, which you can hear more about in our episode with Lauren Monroe, Jr. As Joe and Kathy are both heavily involved in advocacy in a variety of avenues, I asked Joe to share with me in his own words the value in the public getting involved in the decision-making processes in their own communities or professional fields, and for others to seek out and truly listen to the local voices on the ground. So like I was talking earlier, you know, our people have been through so much, and we're those of us that are still here are uh, the product of some very strong survival survivalist. I'll give you an example. You heard me talking to Trevor earlier saying that the camp of small robes in 1820, I think, was 7,000 people. We don't know what the entire camp or tribe of the Pagan Indians was, the Bikuni. I've, I've heard estimates from Rocky Mountain House that same time period. So prior to pandemics and alcohol, but maybe 20 to 30,000 South Pagans. In 1905, there's less than 2,000 left. In a 100-year period, only 10% of the population was still viable. And now, of course, we're, we're back up to about 18,000. Okay, so just the fact that we're still alive is a testament to the strength of our ancestors and what they sacrificed for us to be here. So we're familiar here with what our, our own personal issues are. But out there, they don't know. They don't know who we are. They don't know where, where we come from. We're still, to a lot of people, a noble savage. They don't understand it's science and earth science. Everything we do is science. All of our beliefs, we all know that. But out there, they don't. They don't know who we are. Hopefully, society keeps evolving and getting better and better, more open-minded in each generation. That'll be a lot easier to communicate with our brothers and sisters out there in mainstream United States, that they'll understand some of the, the atrocities, the generational trauma we've gone through. Basically, we are a product 
of genocide. So I can sit here and I, I feel like I'm fairly healthy, but there's so many of my people that aren't, that are still struggling to find that forgiveness in their hearts and their healing for why they are where they sit. But we need to stand up and start telling people this is why this happens. Not just, hey, there's a huge amount of grizzly bear depredations on the reservation compared to off the state, but why? Because we don't have good management. That could be fixed. Not just the problem, but how do we fix the problem? We can't just tell our white brothers and sisters, you, your ancestors caused me to be this way. No, we gotta tell them, yeah, that's what happened, but this is how we fix it. Whether it's our school systems, whether it's all these kids at the boarding schools, whatever it is, this is how we fix it. So we as Native people, or any, any advocacy group, you need to come forward, not just with a bitch, but with how do we move forward. Walk in with your complaint, walk in with your solution, and be willing to help them. Thank you so much to Joe and Kathy Kipp for sharing your time and insight with us. For Blackfeet producers, you can follow the Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association's Facebook page for announcements and information. And links to their website, as well as links to other entities mentioned today, are in this episode's show notes. Be sure to also check out the other four podcast episodes with perspectives from others within Blackfeet Nation on a variety of topics, including Joe and Kathy's daughter, Kristen Kipp, who speaks to her experience on the Governor's Grizzly Bear Advisory Council. You can find the Life in the Land film episode, which these voices are featured in, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana at lifeintheland.org. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you to Trevor Spotted Eagle for camera and technical assistance in the field and to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode. This episode was co-produced by Leilani Upham of Iron Shield Creative, which fosters the natural world and human connection through Indigenous storytelling in Montana. Find out more at ironshieldcreative.org, and they're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the homelands of the Amskapi Pekani Blackfeet Nation, who interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support. We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org. 